Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're Russia, then whatever has changed in the world, your ports still freeze and the northern European plains are still flat. So how you see your threats and opportunities in many ways, these things haven't changed. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. Gisela Stewart is a rare figure in British politics, a Labour politician who campaigned wholeheartedly for Brexit. As an MP from 1997 to 2017, Gisela is perhaps best known for her role in the 2016 referendum, where she chaired the Vote Leave campaign and appeared in the TV debates. But her deep interest in constitutional and foreign affairs long predates that referendum. Gisela sat on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee for nearly a decade, was a founding signatory to the foreign policy think tank the Henry Jackson Society, and is now chair of Wilton Park, an executive agency of the Foreign Office dedicated to mediation and resolving international conflict. Our assistant editor, Frank Lawton, sat down with her to chat all things foreign affairs. He began by asking her whether Britain actually had a foreign policy. Well, we are represented in a large number of international organisations where the UK takes a very significant role, whether it's a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, to uh, the Commonwealth, to the World Bank, you name it, we are represented. But if you were to say... Do we have a coherent strand by which we project our place in the world and how we use our military, our international aid and our consular diplomatic uh, power? I would argue that we probably haven't had one since the last decade of the last century. Why do you think that is? The new Labour government, when it came in '97, if you look at the, the, the... people who formed the first Blair government. You had a number of big individuals, you know, whether it was Robin, Robin Cook or George Robertson, uh, Blair Brown, who had thought about a what a Labour government would look mm. like, but also realised that part of the redefinition of the new Labour project was our role in the world. Uh, George Robertson came in as Defence Secretary. And if you talk to people in the MOD... Uh, they they will say that that probably was the last truly comprehensive defence review, uh, and it had some fundamentals underpinning it. You know, we're an mm. island. What is the threat from the air? What is our appetite for expeditionary forces, which then determine the size of the army? 
But then we also made a really big decision uh, that we would take international aid out of the Foreign Office and we gave it a, a very specific target on spending. And that was only uh, for poverty reduction. And what happened rather unexpectedly is that whilst people thought to begin with that would weaken our international aid presence in the face of a strong, overpowering foreign office, the reverse happened. Uh, then, of course, we know Iraq happens. Mm. Uh, foreign policy suddenly made by direct phone calls through number 10. And we've now got very weak institutions which don't interact. And that's something which we have to change. So you were in Parliament when the decisions on Iraq and Afghanistan were made. What do you think the effect of those decisions has had on, on what we think of as the possibilities of our foreign policy? Has it, has it made us move back, withdraw within to ourselves? Has it changed the way we see ourselves in the world? I think we still haven't really faced up to the process of decision-making. And we have a parliament that, with every uh, election, brings in a another wave of MPs who probably are more familiar with a map of their constituency which shows their potholes than uh, a map of the former Yugoslavia and what the finer points of the, the various constituents' parts and their needs are. Um, and I understand that because the, the need to get re-elected is, is, is the primary mm. thing which drives uh, MPs. But, you see, what what I find so curious is that we've forgotten that in the 90s it seemed as if everything was possible. The Berlin Wall falls. Uh, we think liberal democracies have prevailed. Uh, uh, the end of the, 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 the Soviet Union. Uh, we start intervening in a successful way mm. in the Balkans. You know, We did so without a UN mandate. People have forgotten that. Yeah. Uh, we went to Sierra Leone. And that gives rise to Blair's great Chicago speech, uh, which starts to introduce a concept of a duty to protect. And in that spirit of uh, that we can actually prevent uh, that intervention works, we suddenly have Iraq. And I still remember I voted for the intervention in Iraq on the basis of the first Iraq war, unfinished business, no armistice agreement, breaches of uh, UN resolution after UN resolution. And the question should have been, why now? And that's where I think people, including the Prime Minister, sort of lost their bottle mm. and they started to go down the road of weapons of mass destruction. They started to talk about 45 minutes, which, quite frankly, was never clear to me just what precisely could be done in 45 minutes. <laughs> and I remember asking the then uh, Defence Secretary, Jeff Hoon, and his, he explained to me very carefully how what the Sun newspaper would do to us. Uh, which I didn't think had anything to do with the 45 minutes. And it was at that stage, with the lack of future uh, preparation, that I think we started to lose our way. And why that matters today is that we have now, as in many other areas of politics, a very curious position where we kind of argue that intervention is bad when it comes to uh, Iraq. We or even with hindsight now Libya. But the very same people will tell you that Syria came about because we didn't intervene. Mm. Uh, and I remember going into the Syria debate where, again, 
we have to remind ourselves what happens. Uh, Parliament is in recess. It's about to come back on a Tuesday. The Prime Minister recalls Parliament following the what was then almost established chemical attack uh, in in Syria and this assumption by the, the international community that the, a red line had been crossed. He recalls Parliament early the week before. So I went into the vote being usually fairly hawkish, thinking there must be a reason why we asked to come back four mm. days early. Uh, there must be an explanation why something needed to be done now um, as, for example, would have been with Libya, the, the yeah. imminent attack on Benghazi. Uh, and David Cameron gave absolutely no reason, which, persu- well, it persuaded me not to vote for intervention, mm. even though I'd gone in, want- wanting to. to support it. So, so Parliament, in a sense, has to make up its mind. It cannot go on being in a position that whatever was done with hindsight was wrong. Mm. Well, do you think that there's maybe a need, you know, you're the chair of, of Wilton Park, an executive agency of the Foreign Office, do you think that there's perhaps a need to change the structure of how we make foreign policy decisions? Because we have the Foreign Office, but we also have the Department for International Development, the Department for International Trade, perhaps the Ministry of Defence and the Ministry for Exiting the European Union, all of whom are involved with making foreign policy or are enacting versions of foreign policy. Do you think that that's uh, a little perhaps confusing? Does that mean there's a lack of joined-up thinking? Or is that just an, a way of sort of dispersing responsibility and, and being more effective? I mean, Wilton Park is an interesting organisation in the sense that as an executive agency of the Foreign Office, it is not the Foreign Office, but it is part of the Foreign Office. Mm. And it's not a think tank in the sense that it, it creates its own policies, uh, it does so by using its power to convene. Mm. And the power to convene uh, people who may normally not meet or giving them the space uh, to to think long-term ahead um, on the national and international level, and increasingly we're doing it away from the UK and also do it abroad, um, is, 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 is very effective because it feeds into a policy stream not just here but also abroad and above all it it doesn't require anybody to try and take the credit for anything you just mm. give them the space to think yeah. and you you, mo- you moderate the debates um, and since leaving parliament in 2017 uh, I continued to be a director at the Henry Jackson Society which we found in 2005 which was to make the case for liberal democracies I worked with the British Foreign Policy Forum um, it's the, the very question of what do we need to do to have a foreign policy is the thing which exercises me. And I think there are two things. One is we do need a, a debate which makes it quite clear that foreign policy is actually a domestic issue. Mm. It is not something to say it's got nothing to do with us. And therefore, whether it's politicians uh, in their constituencies, whether it's universities, whether it's under 35s, we need to engage because it affects us all. In terms of Whitehall, uh, my sense is there has been a recognition that to have the MOD with um, a target of 2% of GDP spending to fit in with the NATO commitment, to have differed with a statutory target of 07 
And the Foreign Office, as an institution that has no protected budget, and I think mm. at the last round got 0.09%, there's an imbalance there. In a how, And the people within Whitehall do realise that they need to work together more effectively. But I think over the last 10 years, we have seen a reduction in the number of those middle-ranking civil servants who these days would be in their early 40s, mid-40s, who are just ready for the next step of promotion to become key decision-makers. I think there's a real shortage of them. So there's almost an administrative capacity lacking to do what mm. we want to do. I mean, historically, the Foreign Office has always been fairly small as a, as a department, but it seems, as you say, to, to be getting smaller, which seems odd at a time of a, the sort of resurgence of the need for uh, foreign policy and defence policy in the wake of Brexit, which obviously is, is as much a foreign policy challenge as a domestic uh, issue or just a purely European issue. So why do you think, then, that uh, the Foreign Office and the, Def- the Ministry for Defence have been shrunk, or not at least been enlarged, in the, w- in the wake of you know, the context that clearly requires them to be at the forefront of, of where Britain is going in the future? Well, you know, as as we speak today, it's the, the Supreme Court has just handed down a judgment which I think will send uh, ruptures across the entire constitutional structures. And uh, things will change, and part of the things which I think will change, that uh, notion of taking international trade out of the Foreign Office to take uh, Department for Exiting EU out of the Foreign Office, there will be a kind of realignment because what I think will, in the years to come, drive our global Britain aim, you know, mm. whatever global Britain means, uh, I think will be three things. One is uh, trade, 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 a big driving force. Uh, the second one will be a greater focus of what we can actually achieve with the soft power, not in the traditional areas, but in the growing areas. And and I sometimes say that the best way of of understanding how things are changing is, 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 in my case, take one of your children's globes off the the shelf and sort of tilt it and turn it round so that the the North Pole comes closer into your centre of vision and also... The, the, the Indian subcontinent becomes more to the centre because mm. I think that's where a lot of the shifts have gone. And the third thing is, I think Jeremy Hunt in that sense was very interesting that when he was Foreign Secretary, he uh, took, of course, his commitment to, to global health with him to, mm. to the Foreign Office, that there are issues such as health, which we have often seen as being purely domestic, mm will be seen as much greater players on, 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 on a global scale. What then should, we mentioned global Britain and then the, the possible outline for the future, what, what should global mi- Britain mean? What, what does it mean? I mean, it obviously hasn't been defined particularly clearly at this point, but what, in your opinion, should it mean in, in the wake of a, the, the new emerging context of foreign affairs, foreign relations, America perhaps withdrawing, but us moving away from the European Union in terms of its political structures at least? where does the future lie for Britain? Do you think we have to pivot one way or another, that we should be, as you say, developing other areas like uh, uh, global health concerns? What is the idea of global Britain? Because it's a big slogan that's, that's been around since before the referendum, really. 
but we still don't seem to be necessarily any clearer on, on what it means. You see, what strikes me is that uh, two assumptions which we've had for a very long time are, are being challenged, and that feeds into what I think the definition of global Britain should be. First of all, we, we kind of got through a pace where, where we decided um, geopolitics doesn't matter. Mm. And uh, if you go back and look at uh, geopolitics in terms of the size, your population, your natural resources, your trade routes, I think we're coming back to uh, being aware that this does matter. And uh, I was reading uh, something on uh, China and Russia last night, and uh, I hadn't realised that if you look at the population uh, ratio, you've got 144 million Russians, if you exclude the Ukraine, but you've got 1.4 billion Chinese. This matters, you know. Mm -hmm. And they also made the case of that if you're Russia, then whatever has changed in the world, your ports still freeze and the northern European plains are still flat. So how you see your threats mm. and opportunities in many ways, these things haven't changed. Now, some of those may change. Um, and on top of that, we have assumed that liberal democracies uh, will prevail. And if you have asked me what did I think was the one kind of key of what makes the, the United Kingdom the United Kingdom. It is its kind of commitment to the rule of law and pretty robust institutions. And that doesn't just mean you go out and uh, you sort of think that just because Afghanistan has a ballot box and, 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 and a piece of paper where you put a cross on, we've achieved democracy. Mm. But it's the, the adaptability of liberal democracies which, to my mind, produces economic prosperity. And I think that's where we still, both by geography mm. and by long-standing instincts, can play a big so role. we still should be promoting those things. So interventionism shouldn't be dead, but it might not mean military interventionism. It might mean democratic interventionism, it might mean in, through various initiatives, is that what you're saying? And a very grown-up debate as to what we can and cannot mm. do. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you think our defence, Ben, just to get sort of go back to that point, though, I mean, it's often the elephant in the room, it seems, when we talk about foreign policy, which is that our defence spending in as a proportion of GDP has is, is, is gone down since 2014. Um, and obviously, de- you know, defence normally provides the ultimate backing for diplomacy, it's at least historically thought to do that. Do you think that we need to up our game on defence spending, particularly in the wake of uh, a more perhaps recalcitrant United States? Well, it, it, you know, defence spending is, is, is kind of an interesting one. Uh, the, some would argue that the minute our army falls below 80,000, uh, we, we are kind of lost a comprehensive capacity. Uh, we have just withdrawn from Germany mm. uh, and therefore I think may have given up a fairly pivotal role on mainland of Europe. Um, I think it's a question of what, what we spend it on. And you're right to talk about America's attitude towards the North Atlantic Alliance. So I think our continued cooperation and working together with the French will continue and it will continue to be very strong uh, because we both have got the the, the capacity and a willingness to deploy. Mm. But it's going to be much more of a question of the things we do and the things we don't do. And that's where the challenge for uh, the politicians is going to be very strong. I know it is really uh, satisfying if you're an MP and it is either... MOD question time or foreign policy question, and you you go in there and the night before you've just read some unrest in the chat, and uh, you get up and you say, has the minister uh, realised the terrible threat to country X and F, and what is he going to do about it? Or, Mm. glad to say increasingly, what is she going to do about it? And ministers will get up and say, well, I've phoned the embassy and I'm talking to... But there comes a point where we actually might have to say you know what, we haven't got a diplomatic representation there. We have got a small uh, embassy there, which has got five members of staff who actually focus on trade. And I don't think there's anything we can do about it. Do you think that... So so to my mind, there does seem to be a tension between how we think about foreign policy. There's a lack of coherence in our foreign policy, as you've outlined. We recoil now from intervening, it seems. We underfund the Foreign Office and we have a minimal defence spend, but at the same time we have this absurd overestimate of what our capabilities might be in this sort of fantasy reality of, of what we can do on the world stage. How then do you prevent that fantasy or at least rec- pull back from it and, and draw out a, a map of, of reality, what we can do? How would you actually pass that down to MPs, to the general public? How would you sort of uh, let people know what the sphere of capability might be? Therefore, that, that will change how we think about our role in the world <coughs> as opposed to just thinking, well, we're Britain, we can do whatever, we might be a middleweight power as opposed to a great power, despite being you know, part of the G7, 8, G20, etc. There are, as you say, only a certain number of things we might be able to do in the current context of our spending. It's always interesting when, uh, in, in a well-working um, institution, when one part fails, uh, if things work well, then another part becomes stronger. And curiously, the the greater input and the more strategic thinking of the select committees and their chairs has been, to me, quite an eye-opener. And mm. I think there's a real way forward that 
the way the select committee chairs are chosen, the parliament votes for them for, for a term, they carry a greater authority uh, to speak. It's cross-party, and particularly if I look at both defence and the foreign affairs committees, uh, have come up with some very useful indicators and, and very good policy mm. things. So, you know, the Foreign Affairs Committee looking at uh, our relationship with China, I think was probably more outward-looking than a lot of things I've seen coming out of government. So I think that is, 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 is the way forward, because right. if it is the MPs in the shapes of select committees who arrive at the conclusions that they need to be slightly more realistic... Uh, then, in a sense, the, the MPs have already bought into that. So mm. it's an internal education process. But there is a, there is a curious... Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word without wishing to cause offence, but I'm, I'm wondering whether it is a myth uh, or whether it is something so deep in the British psyche that I just fail to fully appreciate it. But... Uh, whether it comes to the Blitz or whether it comes to Dunkirk or whether it comes to the last Olympics in London, there, there is this intrinsic belief that uh, however we may to appear to lack administrative capacity, uh, give us a deadline, uh, put us into a corner and we'll you know what, morning. we will deliver. And I, I hope that that spirit is there in greater depth than I see it at the moment. Mm. Because, you know, I, I, I keep reminding myself of the, Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, uh, about probably almost two years ago when, when this sort of disjunction of, of, of Brexit started to become apparent, uh, said, you have to ask yourself how a country with a reputation for uh, political stability... Uh, administrative capacity and being one of the world's fifth largest economies could have got itself into such a mess. Mm. Uh, so we, I think we're seeing something much more fundamental that's yes. going on here. Well, it's that talk of deadlines that inevitably does bring us <laughs> back to Brexit. I mean, to, to, to try and again step back from <laughs> to step back from uh, the nitty gritty of what Brexit is doing to our institutions or what we're doing to our institutions in the name of Brexit. Um, Obviously, you were very involved in, you know, you ran the Vote Leave campaign um, and very interested in foreign policy at that point. What, what was your response to the argument that Brexit was or would be an abnegation of, of our sort of historic role uh, in terms of foreign policy, that we would be a balancing power within Europe to prevent uh, any major continental power unifying um, and therefore gaining you know, greater strength than, than we, would, we would want? Um, it seems to me one of the ironies of Brexit is that having always been the break on European integration while within Europe, we've pulled out of Europe and has actually ironically seemed to unify Europe and made the likelihood project of federalism stronger, perhaps. Do you think that that, that, that argument is a, is a correct argument is it, or is it just, um, I suppose... Well, wishful thinking is the wrong, <laughs> wrong term because you have to be a federalist to wish for it. But uh, that's just a misreading of the situation. Well, it's interesting that I agree with both parts of your statement, except that I don't accept the, the causal relationship. You are right. Uh, historically, it has never been in uh, the, the British Isles' interest to have uh, one central power 
dominating the continent of Europe. And up until 73, uh, there were two forms of uh, how nation-states in Europe related to each other. They either were part of uh, the European Economic Community, which was a a post-World War II construct mm. to ensure that Germany and France would never go to war again. Yep. Let's just be absolutely clear about that. It was an economic tying-in, uh, the original six members, the Benelux countries, uh, there was a logic to that. Italy, it's almost historic. Uh, but it was a project where we tried to replace ideology and the dark underbelly of nationalism uh, by a system that was bureaucratically efficient and could deliver an economically better tomorrow. Mm. And for that, we took the excitement out of it, of ideologies. But hand in hand with that went that if the, the common market provided economic stability, then NATO would provide the military yeah. uh, protection. When Britain joined in 1973, it, A, went against its stated object because it actually became part of that nascent single power mm. rather than being a counterbalance. Uh, and what's more, it deprived any small country in, for the, in the rest of, of the European continent of a choice because we left EFTA and that just left. And, and the, the, the logic of this you saw uh, when the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the 11 accession states when they joined in 2004, for them there, there was no other option mm. on the table. But now we've got new fault lines uh, and that is whether you are part of the single currency are not a part of the single currency. It's whether you're a debtor country or whether you're a beneficiary of that single currency. And it will be interesting whether in 50 years' time it will be seen as more remarkable that we decided to join in 73 rather than our decision to leave in 2016. I think it's the latter. Do you think you'll see a two-speed Europe in that period, by the way? You're talking about... The, yes. You think you'll oh, see two oh, tiers of it? Oh, inevitably, uh, because... The, the, the deeper integrational requirements of the single currency. Mm. Uh, you know, who, who is the sovereign in this? Who is the ultimate yeah. underwriter of the currency? Um, it always was a reluctant Germany at a time when Germany had the financial capacity to mm. be one, it, there was a, but there was a political reluctance. Whereas if you look at the, the size of the structure and what's happening to the German economy... German political reluctance may also be now be uh, combined with German's inability yes, to deal right. with the, the the size of the task. So, so we will have new tensions. And you see, I st when when David Cameron uh, called the referendum in two thousand sixteen, I always ask myself when I'm faced with what are really difficult decisions, and I get to the point where I. I think I know where I'm going. I then ask myself, okay, and what would need to happen for me not to do this? Mm. So I thought I sat down and thought, what would have been the deal? David Cameron would have had to come back from Brussels, which would have made me campaign to remain. And it would have been a permanent recognition enshrined in the architecture of the European Union that forever and ever you will have countries who are part of the single currency and countries who are not. Mm. Not an opt-out, not something that's temporary, 
but it's a different structure. Mm. And that I would have said, yep, okay, let's give that a try. How then, in the development of this two-speed Europe, where there will be countries as part of the single currency and countries that aren't, and that might you know, change the, the, the federal balance, how do you think the UK will interact with that new Europe after Brexit? Do you think it will sort of drift or, or, or walk towards the, the sort of lower tier of the European project, the one that is a step removed from the central powers, or do you think that by that point it's a whole new world we can't, you know, it's too far away to, to discuss? But c- because that second tier of Europe sounds more like the, t- the sort of thing you were talking about. I think for the UK there's going to be an additional challenge because it, the divide is not just Euro, non-Euro, it's then Northern Euro, Southern Euro countries. Mm. The, 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 the Northern Euro member states are the positive contributors, the, the Southern Euro aren't. And that tension plays itself out in, in, in different ways. And I think that's where the UK has to come back and think strategically. It needs to think about its own uh, defence needs, yeah. uh, which will make Scandinavia very important. Uh, you know, we've kind of forgotten, or we, we're not taking notice of that the Scandinavians are very conscious of their never easy relationship with Russia. Mm. You know, Sweden has reintroduced conscription. Uh, so, uh, and in that context, Poland will be very important. Uh, in terms of trade, I think uh, you know North Africa will, in that sense, be important. So it will be a change, and that's where Britain can only make strategic decisions mm. if it's aware of its capabilities and its its constraints. Yeah. One thing that looms over this this whole debate is the possibility, or at least to my mind, is the possibility of a Jeremy Corbyn government, because to my mind, from uh, his history as an activist, his history as a parliamentarian, the impact of a Jeremy Corbyn government on our foreign policy aims to be quite profound regarding his relationship with NATO, his relationship with America. Would you, would you agree with that? And that, that if, if there was a Jeremy Corbyn government, there would be, have to be a considerable reconsideration of that question of strategy because it would, his government would operate upon, it seems, fairly different lines to the past... 50 years of British foreign policy? Or do you think, naturally, once he's in government, he'd be more likely just to sort of be ameliorated and, and uh, brought into the standard system? Uh, given the events of the last three years, uh, I have definitely given up any kind of predictions as to what people would do. The only thought that's kind of left with me is that it doesn't seem to me at the moment as if any uh, party is likely to go into a general election and end up with a massive majority. Mm. You know, I came into Parliament in 97 when our chief whips thought it was a failure of the whipping system when our majority was less than 100. Uh, Another era. Easy to forget these things. And if you want to bring about fundamental changes, uh, you, you do need significant majorities Uh, and the kind of dividing lines between some of those big foreign policy decisions don't necessarily fall along uh, party lines Mm. so I think you would have rather interesting debates Uh, I think of course if you had a, a 
another Scottish referendum, even just having a referendum, irrespective of what that outcome would be, uh, the question of fast lane would come up again. Because mm. in, the, in, in the last uh, referendum, the SNP got itself in a position where they kind of stuck with NATO and actually stuck with a nuclear deterrent yep. rather than... So th- there would be some debates, but and, and probably some very much needed debates, mm. but whether any party would have a significant majority mm. to bring about big changes, I would doubt. The historic continuity of the Foreign yeah. Office might prevail. Yeah. Okay. On that note, Isla Stewart, thank you very much. Pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.